this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindus in focus podcast i'm zubeda hamid your host for today as the second wave of the covid-19 pandemic raged this year reports poured in of economic distress not only were thousands of indians left without livelihoods due to the lockdown they also had to cope with the trauma and expenditure of a loved one who had contracted covid-19 media reports indicated that the costs ran into lakhs for hospitalizations compounded by the desperate search for oxygen and black marketing of drugs India has one of the highest rates of out-of-pocket expenditure in health in the world at over 60% and recent data has shown a decline in household income as well as a rise in gold loans during the pandemic period. To speak to us about the enormous strain health expenses have placed on Indians, the role of the public and private sector in the pandemic and what role insurance has played and could play in the health sector in India, we have with us today Dr. Rama V. Baru, Professor, Center of Social Medicine and Community Health Jawaharlal Nehru University. Good morning Dr. Baru and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Thank you Zubeda. Ma'am, out-of-pocket health expenditure defined as direct payments for health services made by individuals has always been high in India because of low resource allocation and capacity in our public health system. What do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has done to our services in the public health? As you are all aware, the um, Indian health services, the public health services have been underfunded for many many decades. And over the last few years, while there has been a great deal of discussion on increasing outlays, we have not really seen that happen. So when an emergency like the COVID-19 pandemic struck, the entire onus and responsibility really fell on the shoulders of the public sector and the public sector had multiple roles to play from surveillance monitoring contact tracing on the one hand to providing curative services and hospitalization in the case of covid-19 pandemic we also know that there were already weaknesses in the infrastructure in the availability of beds in support services like oxygenated uh, beds uh, including ventilators and oxygen supply which under normal circumstances do not require the quantum that the covid-19 pandemic did so having said that there was tremendous stress on the infrastructure there was a tremendous uh, stress on frontline and health workers so you had a lot of pressure on and risk uh, of the frontline and the health workers in both hospitals and primary health centers and it, it added to it was the fact that in many states a lot of the frontline workers including doctors are on a contract basis so there were already uh, a short of supply and this only added to the burden an important issue that further burdened the public sector was the fact that the government both at the center and at the state could not really rein in the large private sector 
if he had brought them under one umbrella and rationalized the role of the private sector in the time of pandemic, we could have probably done better sharing of resources. This did not happen because the private sector did not want to be reined in and they're very powerful in influencing government policy. And as a result, we were left with a dual system of care. So when the public sector become, became inundated, you had a lot of people moving to the private sector and paying large amounts of money uh, for the hospitalization, for the medicines, for, and as you know, uh, the entire oxygen shortage created a black market in the private sector. Drugs shortages also produced the same. And what really happened with the weak public sector, and I don't want to undermine the public sector. I think they did what they could do to the best of their ability. But having said that, just the sheer volume of patient load and the fact that the turnover in uh, the COVID pandemic uh, was at the least 14 days. So you could not ensure bed availability at the rate at which the cases were rising. So I think these are some of the complexities. And in the process, it was really the patient who bore the entire burden, the burden of caring and the burden of paying for care, both. Ma'am, at 62.4%, India has among the highest rate of out-of-pocket expenses in health in the world. For outpatient care, this number is closer to 70%. The 15th Finance Commission estimates that 60 million Indians are driven into poverty every year due to personal health expenses alone. Keeping in mind the scale of the COVID-19 second wave, can you give us a sense of what the pandemic has done to household incomes? I think we need to disaggregate this experience across wealth quintiles. I think the really poor went largely to the public sector. Maybe they didn't go anywhere. Maybe they just died at home because we really don't have very good data on even the deaths. And a lot of demographers and modelers have been saying that there has been an underreporting of deaths. And we saw that in the second wave when deaths were being recorded, they have to give you a cause of death. And if you say the death is due to COVID, that means the person must have tested for COVID. So we know that there was a lot of underreporting. But having said that, there is also those who are just above the poverty line and largely what I call the low middle class that actually went looking for care, seeking care wherever they got it. And it's not as if when you went to the public sector, you did not incur any expenses. A lot of the time, the consumables, the uh, even organizing for drugs, even organizing for uh, various forms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, oxygen support, etc., had to be done by families. So there was expense being incurred even in the public sector. But what was it being really? Um, incurred in the private sector is of an order which we can't even imagine. We don't have hard data on it, but we certainly have a lot of media reports and anecdotal references to families' experiences of hospitalization and very often how much of the uh, expenditure ran into lakhs. And once you were in a hospital, 
it's not as if there was a standard protocol that was being followed, strictly followed. So there are reports of people being given cocktails of medicines, um, you know, being put on oxygenated beds or being given oxygen support. And the charges for that was very, very high. And this really meant that the direct expenditures incurred by many of these families was firstly very high, but the indirect expenditure also in terms of actually spending on transport, on getting these consumables when you needed them was also equally large. And lastly, I think those who passed away, there are reports of how families had to pay upfront to get their bodies released. And the charges for cremation also went up very high. So I think we need to look at this human tragedy of, uh, you know, if you're going, if it is a choice between life and death, then it is an issue that is of, you know, you don't worry about the money at that moment, but you worry about saving your loved one's life. Right. Ma'am, a recent Reserve Bank of India report said that there was a rise of 84% in gold loans. In the pandemic period, data has shown us that there has been a clear decline in household savings and assets. And we all know that gold is the asset of the last resort in Indian households. While economic distress caused by the lockdown is one important cause of falling income, how much do you think has health expense contributed to this? You spoke to us about how families have had to spend lakhs in order to save their loved ones. So what has happened to their savings? Uh, I think there are two aspects we have to look at together. One that loans families doing, uh, you know, sort of mortgaging their gold. Um, I mean, I know of some cases, these are again anecdotal. Those who lost livelihoods, you know, I'm talking about people who were working in the services sector, who had private little businesses like, say, running school buses uh, for children, etc. Once schools closed, then their uh, enterprise had to close down. And many of them, just to survive on a day-to-day -day basis, did use gold and mortgaged gold in order to really run their households. Now, once you had someone compounded by a hospitalization, clearly people were taking loans, people were selling assets and were trying to pay back these various, um, I mean, to cover expenses for these various situations. There have been cases where people not only lost livelihoods, but they also had uh, family members uh, needing hospitalization for COVID. So I think we saw a lot of uh, media coverage on such issues, um, various online media coverage, as well as print media had covered several of these distress that was caused, the economic distress, the economic displacement, and people being uh, you know, forced to take loans or to sell assets to cover this very, very extraordinary period of both loss of livelihoods and medical care. But I think it would be a bit difficult and incorrect to estimate what would be the extent of uh, um, you know, actually borrowings 
for uh, treatment of COVID. So I think we need to probably leave it at that. But to say that the stress at the household level was enormous, the stress was certainly the burden was much greater for the lower middle class and the uh, the poor, the working class, the migrants. We saw the story of the migrants. So we see there is an increase in burden as you go down the wealth quintiles. But the fact is that in terms of borrowings, definitely you found borrowings um, much more in the middle classes. The poor have very little to sell. So many of them probably just, um, you know, we don't even know. They're not even counted in this, uh, in this whole thing. And therefore, I think the burden of uh, the COVID pandemic has really, really been a very, very serious um, issue. Ma'am, we spoke to us about the role of the private sector. Many states did attempt to cap prices of COVID-19 treatment at hospitals, but even then costs remain high and went into lakhs for several people. Why do you think this capping did not work fully? See, one is that the private sector, you, we have to decide which private sector we are talking about. It's very interesting that right in the early phase of the first wave of the pandemic, the uh, corporate voice through the FICI, um, uh, they basically said that you cannot ask us to cap prices because our, you know we, we cannot, we will run into losses. So I felt that that was a very irresponsible statement for the corporate health sector to make in the case of a national emergency. But having said that, it is a fact that the middle private sector would have gone into the red if there had been too much of capping of prices. Either the state decides that they will give some support to the uh, private sector uh, depending on which private sector you're talking about. I don't think the corporate private sector needed any subsidies from the government. But if you decided to cap prices, there would have had to be some form of compensation, especially to the middle and small private sector. Because the infrastructure required for COVID-19 management is very intensive. And, uh, you know, one, of course, not all small and medium have oxygenated beds. Not all of them have the oxygen capacity that was required for uh, you know, moderate and severe cases. And then they certainly don't have ventilators. So if you were to look at it in that fashion, you would have had to have a graded response to how to handle which private sector. For a moderate case of COVID, you could have had very easily uh, small and medium private sector coming in. But when you started needing ventilators for severe cases, then it had to be the corporate sector. Now, apart from these infrastructural requirements, given the nature of the high infectivity of the COVID-19 pandemic, you also needed a lot of disposable um, items like PPE kits, etc. And when you add up the costs of all of that, it is quite, uh, you know, it's much more than what you would consume in a general health service situation. 
So I think there were serious issues which had not been thrashed out. It was almost as if there was one size fits all and they capped prices. Now, those who had the cushion, like the corporate hospitals, they were the ones who protested against price capping much more. If you look at the Maharashtra case in Mumbai, they were able to bring in the middle and uh, small uh, private sector, but they could not really rein in the corporate sector. The corporate sector charged what it wished to charge. And I think that is really the uh, unfortunate uh, situation of an unregulated private sector. So you can have price capping, but in the midst of a pandemic, who is going to check who is following the rules and procedures? There is very little accountability and regulatory structures to ensure that the patient's interests are protected. Ma'am, why has India had historically low levels of public health expenditure? At present, we are still at less than 2% of the GDP. And if we add in the private sector, it's about 3.9%, which is still lower than most developed and middle-income countries. Even the pandemic has not accelerated our goal of 2.5% of the GDP as public health allocation, which was set by the national health policy. What are the roadblocks to this? I think we need to take a historical view. I the, uh, the first few decades, we were focused on building the economy and the industrial capabilities. So the, the policy was quite clear that we would not invest so much in the health services. Um, we were never committed to building a very strong public health services um, because by the 70s, you had a fairly large private sector and it was already very closely interconnected with the public sector, meaning that there were doctors in the public sector who were engaged with the private sector as consultants, as specialists. So you actually had a mixed economy right from the late 60s, early 70s. And this kind of parasitical growth of the private on the public starts blurring boundaries. And when you have a weak public sector and a weak public sector which is joined uh, or has very deep relationships with the private sector, then the boundaries get very blurred for a person who seeks care. I remember in the 70s and 80s, you could, you know, have a private consultation with a government doctor and the government doctor will refer your case for surgery on a, uh, you know, on, uh, on a priority basis. And you would have paid that public sector doctor. So, you know, I mean, this paying for care came on very early in the public health system. And I think this kind of a growth and then the consolidation of the private sector itself started dictating the policy. So in a sense, the power of the private sector ended up dictating public policy and ensured that its interests would be protected. For example, in the 80s, when you had the Rajiv Gandhi government, much before liberalization, you had already made many changes to allow private the corporate sector to grow. So you gave public subsidies for land. You, you know, this was, this is the kind of thing that, and also import of uh, high tech equipment, there were duties that were slashed. So, you know, you had a situation where the corporate sector in a sense became 
a very important voice for the kind of direction that you wanted the health sector to um, take. And then, of course, 1991 and liberalization brought in, uh, you know, privatization and commercialization of health services as a conditionality with the World Bank loans. So you do find that increasingly there was a very clear understanding and a concurrence with the Indian policymakers and the prescriptions of the World Bank that we would do primary level care would be mainly the responsibility of the government, but the secondary and tertiary curative services could be left to the market. So we split the health services. And what you really saw during the COVID-19 pandemic was a systemic weakness that had a historical root. And I think this this I thought would be an opportune moment for this government to actually reinvent and reassert the importance of the public sector. But very interestingly, the path of commercialization is complete in the case of the BJP agenda. And even when um, the, the entire uh, conversation was about how the private sector can play a bigger role, how PPPs can play a bigger role. And this actually was uh, much before the COVID-19 pandemic. The Niti Aayog's documents clearly point to that, that the way forward as far as they're concerned is more privatization, less of government, and uh, you know that even if whatever investments they'll make, for example, the health and wellness clinics will be uh, very much in line of what the World Bank argued that preventive care should be in the public sector, that is primary level care, and secondary and tertiary should be entirely in the market. So I think this agenda has, in fact, been furthered by the BJP government in both its terms. Ma'am, we do have various health insurance and support schemes running across the states and country. For instance, Ayushman Bharat is a major centrally sponsored scheme providing a cover of rupees 5 lakh to the poorest 10.8 crore beneficiaries. Yet, 60% of our population does not have any kind of health insurance, with more than 90% of our jobs are in the informal sector, suggesting that those employed in the informal sector have to resort to out-of-pocket expenses for health care. How have our existing insurance schemes functioned during the pandemic? Actually, there were some reports on how there was an under-functioning of Ayushman Bharat. If you recall, the person who headed the Ayushman Bharat was transferred out. And that was very significant. Uh, he was the architect of it, and he was much the blue-eyed boy of the government. But for whatever set of reasons, he was moved out. and I. Th I think one very important uh, point about the Ayushman Bharat is that it covers basically below poverty line. There are some states that have extended the scheme using their own finances to cover above poverty line as well. Now, this kind of hospitalization uh, cover in a country where you have a very, very differentiated middle class and you're talking about the informal sector, I'm talking even about formal employment in the services sector, which is the sector that has grown in terms of employment. 
So we're talking about, you know, uh, your shop attendants, your petty business, your range of people who have got employment in the private sector, but are not covered by any insurance scheme. They do not fall into the Ayushman Bharat bracket. So what really happens is that the really rich can pay for their care through buying private insurance. Or if you're a central government employee, you're covered by CGHS, you can also get a co-payment with the private insurance. But when you come down to the very highly differentiated middle class, you find that their employment does not give them insurance cover. So that section of the population is essentially out of pocket. But Ayushman Bharat is only for hospitalization. So you can be in a situation where you're spending money on medical care, not requiring hospitalization. But we also know from states like Andhra Pradesh, who were the forerunners of uh, you know, Ayushman Bharat, in the sense that a lot of the uh, modeling of Ayushman Bharat draws upon Arugishri in Kerala. Maharashtra had its own state insurance schemes. So what you also find is that, and this is my view, that in fact, a lot of those states which were highly commercialized and had a large private sector were dependent on public insurance for patient supply. So a lot of the pressure for Arugishri came from a private sector that needed volumes. And I think this became the impetus, if you like, for expanding the scheme of hospitalization. We also know that a lot of unnecessary hospitalizations, unnecessary procedures were carried out. And this is not something new. You know what insurance schemes do in a country like the United States. There is what you call the medicalization and hospitalized-centered Hospital-centered care becomes the norm. And uh, the people, to, so a lot of the public monies actually went into the pocket of the private sector because in the empanelment, although the empanelment said that you would have both public and private hospitals, if you look at the proportion of private to public in the empanelment data, it is clearly skewed across states to the private sector. So I think these have become major issues for uh, the public insurance scheme. And I think the only way out, and we have argued this much earlier when all these debates of targeted public insurance schemes were coming up, that the only way to rationalize cost and ensure that there is some uh, control on uh, an audit on procedures is to have a one single payer a single window system, like say the Chinese have or the Canadians have, where everybody is covered, irrespective of which class you belong to. And, you know, you can opt out of it if you wish, but technically that you provide universal public insurance coverage, maybe the most rational way of doing it. In that way, you can actually control the private sector through pricing, through procedural audits, uh, and a range of other techniques which are employed in many of these countries. So ma'am, that means at the present, 
Ayushman Bharat is not covering everybody and many of those it's supposed to cover are falling through the cracks. And also because it only uh, covers hospitalization, all of the out-of-pocket expenditures for outpatient care and for pharmaceutical care are not taken care of. Yeah, uh, in some states, they have been experimenting, I think, with some minimum outpatient care also. But we really, I don't really have enough data to comment on that. But the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, there are still questions about um, buying drugs and, you know, reimbursement of drugs is very little. But I know in the CGHS scheme, you do have, and these are civil servants and public sector employees, they do get, they're very privileged in the coverage that they get. And the high-level committee on health sector, which included doctor entrepreneurs like Naresh Trehan and Devi Shetty, set up by the 15th Finance Commission, recommends that health should be moved to the concurrent list of the constitution. It also advocates the PPP mode for ramping up infrastructure at the district level. What do you think of these proposals? Actually, this is, uh, like I told you, the high-level committee has basically endorsed what the Niti Aayog had come up with. And they were very clear that whether it was medical education or health services, that it would be in a PPP mode. This is what I was saying earlier, that the the present government after UPA2, the two terms of the BJP government, has been extremely pro-privatization. And the entire thrust is privatize health services and uh, keep public expenditure to the minimum required. Um, I also believe that uh, this presence of both Devi Shetty and Trehan itself is an important signal that where you want to take the uh, entire agenda of the health sector and how you want to take it forward. And uh, the the issue of, um, you know, uh, privatizing uh, the health sector comes from pressures from the private sector itself. So over the years, you have said the public sector is inefficient. Um, So you created this image of the public sector not being able to perform and you have commercialized it. So in a sense, a weak public sector is kind of counterpoised with a so-called very efficient private sector, right? Uh, High tech uh, images of uh, a Medanta or uh, Apollo is sort of, uh, you know, if you put it against a Sabdajang hospital or a Madras uh, general hospital, the contrast is just, you know, uh, uh, really stark. So I think this high-level committee is just endorsing this path of privatization, uh, greater PPPs. They also want to open hospitals, be allowed to hope open hospitals at the first and second tier towns. And the idea is that they would, and this is said in the Niti Aayog document, that wherever where they are willing, the public health services infrastructure, that is buildings, et cetera, the land, the building will can be given uh, in partnership with the private sector for it to run. Now, the earlier experiences of these show that wherever there is a robust market, private sector is willing to move in. But those which are very poor and backward districts, they're not willing to move in. So you will have all kinds of regional disparities emerging in this 
entire uh, formulation. The other aspect I want to say is that privatization marries very nicely with populist programs. So to me, Aishman Bharat is a vote getter. It is, uh, you're actually appealing to a class which has no access or very little access. And you tell them you can even go to Apollo for care. So what I'm trying to say is this is not just a structural shift. It is a shift in what is good culture of medical practice. Uh, you know, so you're using a lot of symbols and you're providing access to what uh, uh, C.K. Prahlad called the bottom of the pyramid. See, you cannot, none of these private hospitals can be viable if they don't have volumes. And therefore, you give public subsidies to create demand in the lower end of the pyramid. And that is because that is where the large populations are. So you give public subsidies to create demand and those actually benefit the private sector. So I think uh, the move is much more on getting public subsidies to actually enhance this process and accelerate the process of commercialization. What about moving health to the concurrent list? Yes, um, that is a very, very, to me, a very tricky proposition. I'll tell you why I think it's a tricky proposition. You see, uh, India has had a federalist structure. That means the states have had control over subjects like education, health, etc. The center has had some powers and they have also got some funds, but essentially it's the states who really decide. Now, if you read this commentary on moving health into the concurrent list um, and the suggestions that have been made, it is to me a further centralization. That is you weaken the states and the center takes many more of these decisions. You saw a lot of that happening during COVID-19. And I think this was largely missed by many people. The way in which, say, the um, ICMR was demanded of states for reporting. Uh, and many state governments said they felt very pressured by the center. And also that, you know, they were sort of selectively controlling some aspects of the pandemic issue. And the vaccines really brought this out very starkly. First, you say, let the states handle everything. In a pandemic, in a national emergency, which I think is ethically incorrect. But let me not digress. But bring back to the issue of concurrent lists, I'm kind of worried that this will actually uh, further weaken the federalist uh, structure. If you notice, it's not just in health. There has been a systematic move of this government to uh, centralize. For example, the GST. Uh, you know, so you 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 start usurping and controlling the finance mechanisms, and then you weaken any uh, innovation at the state level, and then you slowly move to a highly centralized uh, form of governance. Now, this is. This is actually, in my view, dangerous. And 
I see this tendency in this government to move for such policies whereby the center gets more and more power in its hands. See, then it becomes very easy. And this is also, if you see it in the health sector, a lot of the shift in policies, I'm not talking only about the present government, but even about the earlier governments, the corporate health sector actually went directly to the prime minister's office to get many of the um, uh, changes in policy done. And they don't come under the Ministry of Health. They come under the Commerce Ministry. They're seen as an industry. So actually their suggestion to move it to the concurrent list empowers them to deal directly with the center and have policies that are uniform across states that furthers their own interests. So, I mean, I'm very skeptical of anything that undermines state authority of states, whether in fiscal matters or in other forms of... Uh, I know there is a flip side to this, that there are uh, problems with states. States do not uh, have adequate uh, infrastructure and resources. They are also fiscally strapped and that they may not invest adequately in health. I know there's a flip side, but I don't read these as technical uh, suggestions of a high-level group or the finance commission. I see, I read this along with the politics that it is going to, um, uh, you know, that, that is unfolding in this country. And therefore, I would take a position that this will undermine federalism. And I'm deeply concerned about that. So, you know, so what if you are an opposition government at a state level, but you move to the concurrent list and then your hands are tied? You know, so I think uh, we need to look at the, 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 the this. I don't see this moving to the concurrent list as a purely financial issue or a fiscal reform. I see it more as a part of a political agenda that is being pursued. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Ma Rama. Thank you, Zubeda. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.